0: but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies west. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com.
1: Hey there, listener. This is a two-part story. So if you're hearing this one without having heard the first of our stories about the politics of population, you should really go back... And listen to that one. It's got a ton of historical context that really helps to understand this episode. Okay, have fun. Justine Paradise. Hi, Jimmy Gutierrez. Yo. Uh,
2: so I left you all in a bit of a cliffhanger at the end of the last episode, right? Uh, there was there was about there's a, there was about to be a takeover, a mutiny.
1: All right, let's start with Ben Zuckerman. Uh, he was born in the '40s, and I've heard him described as a red diaper baby. What?
2: What does this mean? I feel like it can't mean what I think it means.
1: Like his parents were communists and they raised him as a communist from the time that he was in
3: diapers. My family was definitely very left wing, but we were also very involved in just general, you know, liberal causes. My my sister Ellen was a freedom rider she marched with Martin Luther King from Selma t- to Montgomery Alabama in 1965 I'm older than Ellen in 1959 I was on the second ever civil rights march in Washington DC Harry this is before Martin Luther King this Harry Belafonte was was the big celebrity on our march
1: that was when he was 15 years old which incidentally is also the year he graduated from high school graduated early Wow. Um, He went on to MIT, studied physics, aeronautics, and astronautics, and then went on to Harvard, got a Ph.D. in astronomy.
4: Real genius kid over here.
1: Well, hard sciences, for sure. And to hear him tell it from a very early age, he considered himself an environmentalist.
3: When I was a teenager in the 1950s, I realized that... American women were having many babies. I think the typical family size was about three and a half children or so per woman, which indicated that the United States was uh, gonna undergo a huge population explosion if the fertility of American women stayed as high as it was during the 1950s. And I felt that even then, it seemed to me the U.S. was populated enough Ben graduates,
1: moves to California, has a job teaching at UCLA. And then in 1969, as the environmental movement's getting into full swing, he joins the Sierra Club. Um, Do we need a refresher on the Sierra Club?
2: It's like the the biggest and oldest, right?
1: Biggest sort of depends on what you mean. It's not the biggest in terms of budget, but it's, it's very grassroots. There are local chapters all over the place. So old school Western environmentalism, the mountains are calling and I must go... Recently, they've had this thing called the Beyond Coal campaign, where they've hired lawyers to go out and get all these coal plants shut down. So they're big, they're effective, they have a long history. I'm nodding. You can't hear that listener, but I'm nodding. And for decades, Ben wasn't really involved in the Sierra Club. He just sent in his check. That is, until 1996.
3: But then in the uh, mid-1990s, the Sierra Club board of directors... uh, Took, took a position to essentially not address U.S. population growth.
1: Ben actually slightly mischaracterized the Sierra Club vote there. The decision they made was to take no position, declare themselves formally neutral on U.S. immigration policy.
3: And I found that a tremendously anti-environmental. And so two other Sierra Club members and I Got together, and we founded an internal Sierra Club organization called Sierras for u s. Population stabilization.
2: i just I just don't understand why is immigration policy coming up in a population discussion? like because population is a global problem. what what does immigration have to do with it?
1: that we will get to that question. But Ben's group, the Sierras for u s. Population Stabilization, started to attract attention. And the people who supported them came from all over the political spectrum, including, Some figures who had
5: some, shall we say, more troubling ideas. Nobody in the Sierra Club seems to understand that this is even happening, right? It was almost like a sleeper campaign. That's Heidi
1: Bierich, a researcher at the Southern Poverty Law Center. And back then, she was working to track white supremacists. Part of her job was to read a bunch of anti-immigrant and nativist newsletters. And as she was reading these pretty fringy publications, she noticed
5: these ads... They were urging people to join the Sierra Club. Well, I was like, what the hell is this? Why, <laughs> you know, like it was the last place in the world that I expected to see somebody recruiting for the Sierra Club.
1: This is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. Today is the second in our two-part series on the politics of population. In this episode, we're digging into the story of how, around the turn of the millennium, population got all tangled up in immigration, in one vote at the Sierra Club, and how that ugly fight represents a pivot point, a transition from the environmental politics of the 70s and 80s to the environmental politics of today. So can we just take a quick stab at summarizing the takeaway from last episode?
2: Why don't you take a quick stab at summarizing the last episode?
1: (laughs) I'm down for that. Uh, (laughs) I would say that the environmental movement got caught up in a particularly widespread flare of population anxiety. And because of their white affluent roots.
4: Cough racism, cough. The solutions
1: that they proposed were all uh, directed at black and brown people and women's bodies. Uh, and then they and then they got called out, and they and
2: right. And then everyone in policy circles at this point just talks about it by promoting female empowerment and women's education and reproductive choice, which is great, you know
1: before we continue the story, I think a lot of people who wish that we were still explicitly talking about, quote, overpopulation, unquote, and probably Ben Zuckerman fits into this category. I think a lot of these people believe that more than just not talking about it, we're not dealing with it either. That environmentalists are shirking their, their duty to protect the planet. But having considered the evidence, I don't think we can say that's true. People are still actively working to limit population growth. For starters, there's a whole bunch of organizations that are working to give women access to healthcare and contraception in countries that have really high birth rates. And some of these are even American organizations.
6: Okay, so my name is uh, Munira Bashir. Um, I'm the Kenya Country Director for the Nature Conservancy uh, based in Nairobi,
1: Kenya. The Nature Conservancy is probably the world's biggest environmental NGO. Here in the U.S., its budget is three times bigger than the next biggest NGO. Uh, so, and when I asked to be put in touch with somebody who is working on population issues, the U.S.-based public relations person said, "No, no, no, we don't, we don't actually do that." But then, when she got me in touch with Munira, Munira was like, "Yeah, we work on women's issues, but population growth is a top ten concern for us here." There's limited land. Uh, the population is growing at a at, at a high rate, and uh, where will all these people live? Where, how are they? How how is the country going to feed them? So there are still tons of organizations working on these. Little ones, big ones, and of course one particularly big one.
7: I'm Arthur Irkin. I'm uh, the Director of Communications and Strategic Partnerships at the United Nations Population Fund, UNFPA.
1: The United Nations. Globally, countries around the world give around $9 billion a year to support women's reproductive health and family planning, spread among various agencies. Arthur Erkin's program gets about 10% of that and estimates it helps around 12 million women prevent unintended pregnancies a year.
8: I think what we see
6: in Europe, there is still broad support for these activities across a broad
0: political
1: spectrum. What's more, American environmental groups are actually talking about population.
6: And we do this in a number of ways. Uh, our most well-known is our creative media, such as our Endangered Species Condom.
1: Wait, what did she say? Endangered Species Condoms.
2: <laughs> so many questions.
1: <laughs> I've, I've never heard those words together before. That is Stephanie Feldstein. Uh, she's with the Center for Biological Diversity, which works mostly using the Endangered Species Act, suing people who are uh, infringing on endangered species habitat.
6: We have volunteers that give About 100,000 of these away every single year all across the country. And these are condoms that come in colorful packages with wildlife art on them, and sayings like, wrap with care, save the polar bear.
1: Wrap with care, save the polar bear. (laughs) When you're feeling tender, think of the hellbender. Before it gets any hotter, remember the sea otter. (gasps) And we've had two years in a row now of record low birth rates in the US, below replacement level. So the idea that people aren't working on this question, at best, I think it could be argued that nobody's making it a big enough priority. But really, it feels to me like this just comes down to why aren't people still using the word overpopulation?
7: Yeah, I mean, it goes back to those those emails that that you and I often get that in, in so many words say, gotcha, you know, you haven't used the word population, therefore you're avoiding the issue.
1: This is Michelle Nyehouse. Uh, a journalist out West who has gotten the same kind of emails that I always get. She's actually writing a book right now about the history of the conservation movement.
7: It kind of reminds me of the, the fight that the Trump campaign had, where they were trying to shame the Obama administration for not using the words radical Islamic terrorism.
1: Michelle says environmental groups know about the history with population that we laid out in the last episode, and they're just being a little more sensitive They say,
7: you know, we're not using those words for a reason. We're not using those words because we don't want to alienate people who very much want to help us.
1: Remember last episode in the early 90s at the U.N. Conference on the Environment in Rio, environmentalists were forced to reckon with the coercive population programs that had resulted from the doomist rhetoric of the 60s and 70s. And then, as they're trying to be more careful around this issue in the late 90s and the early aughts, along comes Ben Zuckerman, who's mounting a campaign to get the Sierra Club to weigh in on what he sees as the big problem, specifically US population growth fueled by immigrants.
3: Thankfully, the fertility rate has come down to replacement level or somewhat below, but because there's so much immigration from abroad, the U.S. population still continues to grow um, rapidly.
2: I just, I don't understand. Why are immigration and population the same topic?
1: Yeah, I mean, there are two pieces. Um, one of the things that he says is, hey, I'm an American and I can only affect American policies.
2: But I guess like, even besides like the racial elements of this discussion, how are you addressing population by addressing immigration? Like, population is a global problem. Where does it matter where the people are?
1: And and now that, like, if people move to America and sort of become part of the American economy, the forces of demographic transition will probably mean they'll have fewer babies. Exactly. Which is what we've seen. So Hispanic birth rates are the fastest to fall in the U.S. They th- It's like a 26% drop in Hispanic birth rates over the last 10 years, um, faster than any other demographic group. Wow. But the second piece is about the different impact that members of different economies have. So he says, we already consume too much. We have the highest per capita carbon emissions. We eat more meat than any other country in the world. So it's like, there are already too many Americans and and maybe we should just have fewer Americans.
2: I'm uh, Fair.
4: Yeah, why yeah. not? <laughs> the, the problem with that is though, is like it, uh, it cements in place uh, the inequality that already exists everywhere else. Like assuming this is a solution to human impact, is also assuming that the rest of the world is never going to achieve our level of affluence.
1: Yeah, right. And I think I think Ben would say that he believes Americans do need to consume less, but generally he agrees that the rest of the world can't consume like
3: we do. I mean, if China ever achieves the same per capita level of affluence as the United States does, the whole biosphere will be destroyed because there are four times as many people in China as there are in the United States. So there's no way that these other countries... Um, can ever come up to the level of affluence of the United States.
1: Maybe you agree with Ben, or, or maybe you think that asserting that poor people all over the world can't have what we have is just another problematic position in a long line of problematic positions. Either way, when Ben Zuckerman first launched his insurgent campaign against the Sierra Club establishment, members of the Sierra Club were sympathetic to his ideas. And in 2002, when he first ran for the board, he was the top vote-getter. This guy? Yes, and then the next year, two others made it onto the board who were supported by the Sierrans for US population stabilization. Sups sup uh, if you want to shorten it. Um, one of them was a guy named Paul Watson, um, who's kind of famous. Did you ever hear about Whale Wars? Animal Planet show?
4: Do you have a clip for us?
9: That ship stands for everything I hate killing innocent animals
6: it's up to us to stop them
2: is this like a greenpeace thing
1: so paul watson was a co-founder of greenpeace but left because it wasn't extreme enough um they were not willing to go far enough in, in his mind okay i interviewed paul as well and and my takeaway was this crew wasn't some sleeper cell organized from above by a mastermind in ucla Paul says that he decided to run for the board after a debate that he had on stage with Carl Pope, who was the head of the Sierra Club at the time.
6: A question was asked, you know, how can one person make a difference? And Carl said, well, all we really have to do is talk to our neighbor. If everybody just talked to our neighbor, that would change things in the world. And I, I remember saying, what, am I up on the stage here with Mr. Rogers or something? You know, it's not that simple.
1: But it sounds like, though, you you wanted to run on your own volition. So this idea that Ben was like, uh, uh, you know, in charge of some sort of movement is maybe an oversimplification? No, Ben
6: wasn't in charge of any movement. He was representing a, a position Uh, you know, we had support for that position from numerous people.
1: And according to both Ben and Paul, there were a lot of folks who supported them. So David Brower founded the anti-nuclear group Friends of the Earth. Gaylord Nelson organized the first Earth Day. Stuart Udall, E.O. Wilson. This list actually goes on for a really long time. But
2: they're like, but they're kind of big. These are all big names. Yeah, I've I've heard of those people. Yeah.
1: And this position... Plain and simple, according to these two, is that if you want to stabilize U.S. population, you have to deal with immigration.
6: The focus was not on immigration alone. The focus was right across the board on ways to deal with this. Uh, Immigration was just one of the issues. But I think what uh, the, the bottom line was this, that the U.S. should come up with a policy that would maintain population stabilization so it wouldn't grow. And whatever contributed to the increase was what was to be addressed. Nobody was saying shut the borders and not allow any immigrants to come in. I mean, what we're saying is that the immigration should be consistent with keeping uh, stabilization.
1: It is worth noting that these guys also believe that the Sierra Club was in the pocket of neoliberal capitalists on this issue. This West Coast hedge fund billionaire had given $100 million to the club around the same time, and it later came out that he told the club that they'd never get a penny from him if they voted to oppose immigration. Mm-hmm. So. As the 2004 board election rolls around, there are three Sierra's for U.S. population stabilization backed candidates on the board already, and another three Susps-endorsed candidates were running. If all six of them made it onto the 15-person board, they would have been able to make a coalition with some other Sierra Club malcontents that were already on the board and make a majority. They would have been able to overrule the Sierra Club establishment.
3: Well, this completely terrified the establishment. They pulled out all stops to destroy us. We'll hear that story after the break.
1: So as we're coming into the 2004 Sierra Club board election, that's when Heidi Bierich with the Southern Poverty Law Center enters the story. She had been monitoring this publication called The Social Contract because it's published by someone named John Tanton, Heidi had been following him for years because of his close ties with overtly racist people. And she noticed these ads in the social contract urging the readers to join the Sierra Club to support Ben Zuckerman and the candidates he was endorsing. So when Heidi sees these ads, she's like... Uh, racists are being told to join the Sierra Club and vote for these candidates. This seems like some sort of coordinated racist takeover.
5: Nobody in the Sierra Club seems to understand that this is even happening, right? It was almost like a sleeper campaign. And this was obviously far before, you know, you had the Twitter and you had Facebook and all these kinds of things where you could make a stink over something. So we were using more traditional means like um, reaching out to the press. And we did something that we've ne- we'd never done before and haven't done since which was to have our co-founder, Morris Dees, run for the Sierra Club board. You know, we had to scramble to get him on the ballot. And if I'm remembering correctly, he was allowed to make about a 300-word statement in this pamphlet that everybody who's a member of the Sierra Club gets. And what we did was, you know, Morris basically said, don't vote for me, right? I don't want to be on the board of the Sierra Club. I'm no expert on environmentalism but don't vote for these other people
2: the southern poverty law center planted a candidate
5: to use the candidate
1: statement to uh try to discredit these other candidates that
2: is bonkers The
4: story is wild
2: so it, is this really a, a racist takeover of the sierra club
1: well all, all all three of these candidates were in favor of somehow limiting immigration to the united states But all of them took great offense in the press when they were painted with the same brush as these blogs and and newsletters that were promoting their cause. And as Ben points out, they had some serious pedigree.
3: Here's something that amazed me, Sam, about the 2004 election. Here, the Sierra Club membership had a chance to have on the board of directors a three-time Democratic governor of the state of Colorado. This guy named Richard Lamb. Frank Mars, uh, a, a African-American leader in Congress. Co-founder of the Congressional Black Caucus. And uh, David Pimentel, one of the outstanding agricultural uh, scientists in the United States, a professor at Cornell University. These three gentlemen were all willing to spend the time at some of these interminable Sierra Club board meetings in order to try and help the Sierra Club be more effective and they got completely demonized and slandered. This move by the SPLC resulted
1: in a lot of press coverage. And unsurprisingly, Ben Zuckerman was absolutely infuriated and, and still is.
3: Sam, it's, it's, it's unfortunate you even mentioned the Southern Poverty Law Center. They um, are a political organization that has its own agenda.
1: He completely denies that there's any sort of conspiracy.
3: Your mention of John Tanton. And the Sierra Club is a perfect example of how they distort um, the truth. John Tanton had nothing to do with Susp. He never was a member of Susp. For all I know, he was not even a member of the Sierra Club during the decade or so that Susp was active.
1: I have to say, I do believe him when he says that there isn't any conspiracy, the idea that some UCLA professor was able to pull together a co-founder of the Congressional Black Caucus and and the Whale Wars guy it just doesn't seem credible. It, it seems much more likely to me that this anti-immigrant John Tanton saw something that he liked that was happening and jumped on the bandwagon. And And this part is really hard because I didn't talk to all the candidates who ran, and I don't want to paint them with one brush. But you can see how some of their rhetoric could attract people like John Tanton. I want to play you one piece of tape. And this is from Richard Lamb, who was the former governor of Colorado, Democrat. He gave this speech that you're about to hear in 2003, before the election, but it didn't become public until after the election. I would like
9: to share with you my plan to destroy America. Number one, I'd make it a bilingual, bicultural country. History shows us. But no bilingual bicultural country lives at peace with itself. My second part of my plan would be to invent something called multiculturalism. This would be two parts. Number one, I would say that all cultures are created equal. It would be, make no difference and make it impossible to talk about such things as culture. And the second one is that I would really try very hard to make people continue their cultural identity. I would replace the melting pot with the salad bowl.
2: Wait, so so this guy was running for the board of the Sierra Club? That is
1: crazy. Well, it, it, it in particular cuz it's factually wrong, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like let's google some some bilingual countries, like Luxembourg, Switzerland, Singapore. Okay. Like, these are places that are doing fine. The US, <laughs> right, the US, Canada.
2: How does Ben Zuckerman feel about being on the same slate as this This person.
1: Well, I'd say Ben, like this type of rhetoric
3: isn't his cup of tea, but... But here's here's one of my basic philosophies of life, which I think applies in this case. One should not stop doing the right thing for the right reasons just because somebody else is doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. And if there are some racists or whatnot who are... um, who are against immigration because they don't want more people of color coming to the United States. There's nothing at all I can do about that.
1: So what I've been trying to do in these episodes is show that debates don't occur in a cultural or historical vacuum. Whatever Ben's reasons for wanting to limit immigration or talk about population more generally leave those aside. But the decision to focus on this subject does come with this incredible baggage that you just can't ignore. And I'm also trying to argue that for the environmental movement, this vote in the Sierra Club it, it signals a turn towards a moment of reckoning. Are we going to finally face this history? For instance, we talked about the forced sterilizations in the '70s in the last episode, but really it goes way deeper than that. And to be clear, again, there have been racist people all over American society, so it's not like these early conservationists you're going to hear about were the only bigots. But there were some real standouts.
7: That Madison Grant may be the most notorious example. He helped found the Bronx Zoo, and he also was a was a important member of the Save the Redwoods League in California, um, you know he wrote a book called The Passing of the Great Race, which uh, Hitler praised as his quote-unquote Bible.
4: Oh, my gosh.
1: That's Michelle Nyehouse again. She actually covered this battle at the Sierra Club as a journalist. There was also a guy named William Vogt, whose book The Road to Survival was this pre-population bomb Malthusian text that advocated for eugenics as a solution to the alleged overpopulation problem.
7: So there have been these associations and it's and at sometimes, you know much more than associations, there have been, you know very tight connections between conservation of other species, and racism. These characters
1: have intermittently been used by opponents to discredit environmentalists. Like, hey, look at these people who were foundational to American environmentalism. You don't want to be associated with them, right? The, the misanthropes, the Nazis, Hitler.
7: When this controversy erupted within the Sierra Club, um, you know, the Sierra Club was quite understandably concerned about reawakening that stereotype of environmentalists as being anti-human and then i'm sure that they were at some level aware of this history of racism within the conservation movement and aware that they had made you know very sincere i think efforts to distance themselves from that history
1: so environmentalism is trying to represent all air breathers and water drinkers But it's sort of handicapped by its roots, and it's it's just recently come off being called out for having huge blind spots when talking about population control through the '70s and '80s. And now you've got a group of people running for the board of one of the country's oldest, biggest environmental nonprofits, people who want to limit immigration and who are attracting the support of some racist, anti-immigrant newsletters and websites.
7: What kind of reception do you think they get? And the, the Sierra Club actually ended up putting a notice on the ballot. Uh, That they sent out to members saying, you know, warning them that outside groups were trying to manipulate uh, their opinion on this issue and were trying to manipulate the vote.
5: Well, Morris (laughs) Dees was not elected to the board and the candidates, the three candidates, um, did not get elected either.
7: Yeah, they were defeated by quite a large margin.
5: And they sued, actually, those three candidates sued saying that they were sort of submarined by the Morris more running for, for a position and so on. That suit just ultimately went nowhere.
1: So the mutiny was basically over. The next year, in 2005, the Sierrans for U.S. Population Stabilization crew that was already on the board got the Sierra to Club to vote on a different resolution in favor of limiting immigration. But it, too, was soundly defeated. And so they finished out their terms or resigned, and that was
2: that. Right, but you said at the beginning that this whole debate kind of represents a real shift in the, like, capital-E environmentalism of the 70s versus now. Mm -hmm.
1: Yes. And to prove that point,
8: I called up. And at this point, black people and... Hold on, I just dropped this phone. (laughs) Up near enough. I like this person already. Oh. <laughs>
1: Bill McKibben. Oh,
4: <laughs> <laughs> He recorded
1: himself on his iPhone and sent me the audio. Um, just felt like we need some comic relief in there. Yeah.
4: Appreciate it. Oh my god.
1: <laughs> so Bill McKibben, cross-country ski enthusiast, uh, wrote End of Nature, first first book that for regular folks about global warming. Um, and he founded this, this climate change advocacy group, 350.org. But also... At the time of the Sierra Club battle, he wrote an article that said, you know, this Ben Zuckerman guy, at least he's got us talking about population again. Bill. do you Did you go back and read the piece that you wrote? In... mm mm-hmm. How did you feel about that when you read it over? I think I felt
8: queasy about it.
2: Hmm.
8: I think it made me feel sad because it was clear to me that myself and probably a large number of other people understood then immigrants as simply a kind of abstract numerical quantity.
1: Bill says he wrote this piece because he's friends with Ben's sister, Ellen, the one that he mentioned at the beginning, who was a freedom rider in the civil rights era. And Ellen
8: called and said, my brother's not a racist. Would you say so? So I wrote what I wrote and promptly forgot about it. And I think everyone, (laughs) and as far as I can tell, no one actually read the piece either.
1: I think Bill kind of perfectly shows how environmentalism is changing politically. So in 1999, he wrote this book called Maybe One, in which he talks about human impact associated with population growth, especially population growth in affluent countries. And maybe because of that, you should just have one kid. In 2004, even though this wasn't his idea initially, he was willing to write this piece about the battle for the Sierra Club. But now he's involved with 350.org, which is a very progressive organization that talks a lot about the disproportionate impact that climate change has on poor people, people of color, people from third world countries. They're trying to pivot away from environmentalism's upper class, European-American beginnings, trying to embrace the lessons from the environmental justice movement, trying to be more inclusive.
8: The old stereotype of environmentalists is that they're uh, affluent white people. At this point, the the best environmentalists in America are people of color and, and above all, uh, Hispanic Americans. Uh, every bit of polling shows that's who cares about climate change, and not surprisingly, because that's who gets hammered first by climate change.
1: The Sierra Club, when I called them about this story, they didn't want to talk about it. They didn't provide me with anyone to do an interview. But they did send me all of these articles and blog posts about work they're doing on gender equity and to help immigrants, All of these materials that show how they're trying to be good members of the progressive coalition, which is a move that I think a lot of environmental groups are either making or pondering right now. And also in general, you see a lot of scholars and writers really wrestling with the problematic roots of their movement. I think as a whole, it's just a move away from the sort of, hey, don't blame me, I'm just doing the numbers and the numbers don't lie
8: approach. I think the point is that doing the whole thing as a math problem just as stupid. I mean, I think it's like trying to solve uh, climate change by, you know, each person one by one installing new light bulbs or something. What's needed is uh, systemic change and that change in the direction of human solidarity.
7: The environmental movement, in order to have the effect that it wants to have, in order to attract, you know, the number of people that it needs to attract, in order For its ideas to prevail, you know, it has to be pro-environment and it has to be pro-human. It can be anti-excessive human footprint, but it can't be anti-human.
4: Can I just take a moment to say I don't know if this is going to get in, but just the fact, like, that we've been we we've and and we're guilty of it too, is that we we spent so much time um, talking about the equation in the first episode, right? and then for him to humanize it talking about these are actual people not a part of a numerical equation like is something that was i don't think like explicitly stated by anyone yet mm-hmm. which is like really troubling i do appreciate the fact that that someone has used humanizing language
3: yeah
2: yeah
1: Have you heard the term carrying capacity? Carrying capacity is how many organisms a given habitat can support. You hear it a lot in reference to species that we hunt, like deer and beaver and the like. And it's something that population scholars of all stripes have been trying to calculate for the number of humans on planet Earth for more than 100 years. And just as I was poking around looking for info for this story, there there are six papers that say the Earth can support only 2 billion people or fewer, so we're already over. And there are five that say we can support more than 100 billion people on the planet. So they're all over the map.
9: People have used carrying capacity as a political number.
1: This is Joel Cohen, demographer at Rockefeller University. The
9: problem is a problem of poetry. The whole notion of carrying capacity is borrowed from wildlife management. But people are not wildlife. People change their interactions with the environment through knowledge and through their institutions
1: and through their cultures. Joel thinks that it's impossible to figure out what the carrying capacity of Earth is. Unlike wildlife, we adapt, we innovate, we come up with solutions to our problems. And because of that, so far, every Malthusian prediction that has been made has been bested by our cleverness. But for now, the environmental movement seems to have settled on the fact that because of all of this history, it's very problematic to be anti-human population. But it's still reasonable to be anti-human impact. And so they've focused on the ways that we can try to decouple the scale of our impacts from the number of us out there. We can change our agriculture and our homes to use less land. We can change how we eat and how we make energy so as not to cook ourselves. But if that is our strategy, things really do have to change.
9: I think it was Eisenhower who said, it's absolutely essential to plan and plans never work. But there is a world outside of human will. There is an earth with oceans and crusts and atmospheres. And we can modify the atmosphere. We've done it and we can raise the temperature increase the acidity and pollute the oceans we're doing it but if the oceans warm water expands that's a law of nature and if the ice in antarctica and greenland melts the oceans are going to go up some more this is the only place we've got to live and we're not paying enough attention to the constraints on human wants imposed by the reality of the world we live in.
1: in was produced this week by me, Sam Evans-Brown with help from Hannah McCarthy, Justine Paradise, Taylor Quimby, and Jimmy Gutierrez Erica Janik is our executive producer Maureen McMurray is the director of Endangered Species Condoms as Fun Drive Premiums. Special thanks to NHPR's Josh Rogers, who was the voice of Thomas Malthus in the last episode and who I forgot to thank, and to everyone who spoke to me for this story it's obviously a fraught topic If you have thoughts or opinions about our treatment of this subject, we want to hear from you. You can typically find a live discussion on our facebook group that's the one that you have to request permission to join and of course you can add us on twitter i'm at sam eb and the whole crew is at outside in radio music in this episode by blue dot sessions and poddington bear our theme music is by breakmaster cylinder outside in is a production of new hampshire public radio